Well, hello and welcome to the CSF monthly podcast for July. And this month we've uploaded two papers to the CSF website and I'm actually going to review both of them for you today. And always remember that the detailed slides for these can be found in the CSF website. The slides really are terrific. They're available for your use and you'll find them really helpful and valuable, I think. So please go and have a look at that if you will. Now, the first paper I want to highlight looks at the clinical outcomes in RA patients who have switched from adalimumab to baricitinib. And the first author here is uh, Fessa Tanaka from the University of Occupational and Environmental Health in Japan. So what's the key background here? Well, of course, all of us in clinical practice are switching therapies all the time. It's a, a commonplace part of our management, particularly when patients have inadequate responses, intolerance, or sometimes the patient themselves offer a, a preference which we feel we have to recognize. And therefore, the ability to know how uh, safe and efficacious medicines are one after the other is really rather important. Now, switching from adalimumab to baricitinib has been looked at previously during the RA Beacon study, albeit with a four-week washout period. And washout periods may not be entirely tolerable to patients who are worried about flare, particularly when they're usually thinking about a change because they're not feeling so well in the first place. Now, in this study, the aim was to evaluate a clinical outcome in patients switching from adalimumab to baricitinib without a lengthy washout period across two studies. Uh, so the data were drawn from RA-BEAM and the long-term extension RA-BEYOND. Quick uh, reminder, patients in RA-BEAM were assigned 3 to 3 to 2 to oral placebo, oral baricitinib 4 mg or subcutaneous adalimumab 40 mg every other week. And during RA-BEAM, patients switched to baricitinib based on their response to adalimumab treatment. And this was assessed at week 16 using tender swollen joint counts. And it was a less than 20% improvement from baseline that would prompt a change. I remember also that patients could enroll into RA-BEYOND once they had completed RA-BEAM at week 52. And in RA-BEYOND, all patients switched to baricitinib regardless of their previous response to adalimumab. So two different points in the study protocol where people could switch and therefore uh, give us the data that are reported here. So the efficacy and safety were assessed based on the proportion of patients achieving a, an LDA remission, examination of quality of life, uh, patients assessment to pain across both studies, but also serious adverse events, always thinking about safety. So key results. Well, of the 1,305 patients that received treatments, 7% of the baricitinib and 12% of the adalimumab patient groups were switched to baricitinib during RA-BEAM. Remember, it's double-blinded. And consistent with prior findings of RA-BEACON, patients benefited clinically with significant improvements in the mean CDI, SDI, DAS-28 ESR, weeks 4, 8, and 12 post-rescue. And there were sustained improvements in pain and physical function observed from four weeks. Uh, now, one thing to note, during the RA-BEAM exposure adjusted incidence rates, the SEEs and A's leading to discontinuation were numerically higher in patients who continued baricitinib. Now, in RA-BEYOND, patients initially treated with adalimumab showed statistically significant improvements after switching to baricitinib formix. Uh, at week 24 of the long-term extension phase, both baricitinib and adalimumab groups had similar outcomes related to pain and physical function. And recall also that infections, serious infections, were similar in both groups. So uh, what do we 
make of all of this? Well, in both RAB and RA Beyond, there is uh, transitioning from adalimumab to baricitinib that can be achieved without a lengthy washout period. It would appear that that can be done in a safe and tolerable manner. And it does look as if we can maintain clinical disease control or indeed in the circumstance of suboptimal control, we can even improve upon that. Okay, so the second paper this month is authored by one of our CSS steering committee members, uh, uh, Len Calabrese from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And this is a paper that examines the live Zosta vaccine in people with uh, tofacitin of monotherapy or tofacitin with methotrexate or adalimumab with methotrexate. And vaccine use in rheumatoid, as you very well know, is an area of intense investigation with JAK inhibitors. That's partly because of their rather broad immune suppressive profile. And uh, if you also think back in May's podcast, we discussed the pneumococcal and tetanus vaccine responses. So what would you need to know in the background to this study? Well, first and foremost, people with rheumatoid have a higher risk of developing herpes zoster compared with the general population. Um, we're not entirely sure why all of that is, but the, the broad spectrum of JAK inhibition on immune function is likely to take out a number of the immune factors, at least that contribute to that. Uh, we, we've also seen in prior studies that treatments such as tofacitinib have uh, promoted an increased risk of developing herpes zoster. Uh, now, both ACR and ULAR have given recommendations that the, the live zoster vaccine should be used, but its efficacy is limited and reduced with age, and we also have to be really careful about the use of live vaccines in the context of immune-suppressed patients. Now, this is an analysis of the oral strategy study, and that explores, uh, on this occasion, the rate of herpes zoster events by treatment arm and live zoster vaccine safety in RA patients. So quick reminder of the study, patients received the live zoster vaccine before being randomized one to one to one to receive tofacitinib 5 mix monotherapy, uh, tofacitinib 5 mix plus methotrexate, or subcut adalimumab 40 mix every other week and methotrexate. Patients were excluded if they had a history of a recurrent disseminated herpes zoster or herpes simplex. And finally, herpes zoster events were deemed serious if they were life-threatening, uh, required parenteral antiviral treatment, hospitalization, or resulted in disability, birth defect, or death. Fairly standard definitions there. The Zosta vaccine-related adverse events were also reported, including injection site reactions and development of Zoster-like lesions. Remember, it's a live, modified virus. The incidence rates and 95% confidence intervals were calculated for each treatment group and for vaccinated and non-vaccinated patients. And the crude uh, herpes zoster incidence rates were also calculated for vaccinated and non-vaccinated patients stratified by age more than or equal to 50 years. Remember, there's an age-related component here. So this is a nice sub-study within the, the wider oral strategy trial, which was a, an opportunity to look at the behavior of the vaccine in both those receiving vaccine and indeed those not. So what are the key results? Well, overall, 1.6% of patients receiving treatment developed herpes zoster. All patients receiving tofacitinib monotherapy who developed zoster also received corticosteroids at baseline. The overall um, herpes zoster incidence rates were 1.1 for tofa monotherapy, 2.3 for tofa and methotrexate, and 1.7 for adalimumab and methotrexate, and were similar between vaccinated and non-vaccinated patients. 
the incidence rates for vaccinated patients more than or equal to 50 years were 1.6 for TOFA monotherapy, 3.1 for TOFA in combination with methotrexate, and 0 for adalimumab and methotrexate. Now, in non-vaccinated patients aged more than or equal to 50 years, the herpes zoster incidence rates were 0.94 and 2.4 for the TOFA monotherapy, TOFA methotrexate combo, and adalimumab methotrexate combo, respectively. Um, there were no zoster-like lesions in the 42 days following vaccination. So what do we conclude here? Well, it, it, it looks like the uh, live zoster vaccine is well tolerated. And the wide and overlapping 95% confidence intervals mean that no significant differences could be defined between treatment groups, nor indeed between vaccinated and non-vaccinated patients. Um, you should note that oral strategy was not designed for comparisons between the vaccine, non-vaccine groups. Uh, less than 20% of all patients were vaccinated. So definitive conclusions in vaccine efficacy, similarly, we, we simply can't draw those at this point. And I think the, the key take home here is that in, in a desert of data, these at least give us something to work on when we're talking to patients, but we really need more studies. We, we need uh, larger studies that properly compare the live uh, zoster vaccine efficacy in patients versus the general population to uh, potentially identify modifiable factors such as concomitant medications. You saw the allusion in the results section to the use of glucocorticoids, for example and to achieve maximal herpes zoster prevention. And of course, the other thing is that we now have the killed vaccine available. We have a recombinant vaccine rather, which is not, um, is not a live vaccine. And I think factoring that into our discussions is going to be very uh, much a real entity in the next number of months. Okay, well, all the content I've discussed this month is available in a more detailed slide format in the publications section at cytokinesignaling.com. Go and have a look at it at your convenience. The, the website's great. You'll find a whole lot of useful information there. It really is a quick, easy place to bring yourself right up to date. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast either on our website, SoundCloud, or YouTube, and let us know what you think by leaving a review. Thanks um, so much to you for listening. I, I hope this has been helpful to you and uh, I wish you the best of luck in treating your patients.